Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs, and dedicated to the proposition that Walter Lippmann articulated during World War II, that a strong foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman. I'm a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center and the counselor at the Strategic Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Elliot Cohen. Elliot, welcome. Great to be back. Uh, I'm Elliot Cohen. I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins SICE and the chair in strategy at CSIS. I'm also a recovering dean. Uh, and our guest today is the wonderful Corey Shockey. Uh, so uh, let me, uh, with your permission, Eric, uh, introduce her. Please. Corey, who's a longstanding <laughs> friend of ours and who cheers us up when we get glum about the state of uh, the Republic, which is quite often is the Director of Foreign and Defense Policy at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, she's had a remarkable career. She, I think your first government job was as the NATO desk officer on the Joint Staff, if I'm not mistaken. That is true. Yeah. Um, and uh, she's uh, served in senior positions as uh, the Defense Director on the National Security Council staff and Deputy Director of the Policy Planning Staff at State, where I had the privilege of working with her for just a bit as well as positions at the Hoover Institution, now AAI. She's also a very widely published author. I would call to your attention two books in particular, Safe Passage, Transit from British to American Hegemony. Corey, I think like Eric and myself, is somebody who believes that you study history to help illuminate the challenges of the present. And then with Jim Mattis, a, uh, a book called Warriors and Citizens about how the American people view their military. So she is a, has a, a wide array of interests and expertise, uh, and it's just a delight to have her with us. And so, Corey, welcome. It is so nice to be with you, my friends. Thank you for giving me the opportunity of this conversation. I should point out that Corey was also my colleague and the White House staff back in the first term of Bush 43. So very true. But, <laughs> but as I said, unlike, you know, we're, whereas you and I are really kind of the Eeyore and puddle glum of uh, the old Republican <laughs> national security establishment, Corey's the optimistic one. And we will want to turn to that later because it would be interesting to know <laughs> why you're optimistic. In any case, let's, let's move to our, our first subject. Uh, Corey, one of the topics in which you've written a great deal is contemporary American civil mil military relations. You have a, an article, I think, just out on uh, Strategic Studies Quarterly. You've written this book with Jim Mattis. Do you want to just lay out for us what your your beliefs are about the state of American civil military relations today? Uh, what are some of the issues and challenges that you see looming ahead? And we can launch sure. the discussion from there. Sure. I think the state of civil military relations in the United States is fundamentally sound and fundamentally um, positive. The main test of civil military relations, like the way to know that they are in trouble, is if an American president would fear to fire a military commander or would have the military to refuse. Um, and we are just light years away from that sad, dangerous outcome in the United States. The uh, American military has almost always, and certainly always in the memory of the volunteer force, which came into being in 1973, been a domesticated military, by which I mean to say that they fundamentally accept 
and actually revere civilian control of our military. And uh, one of the reasons civil military relations uh, are so positive in the United States is the checks and balances that the founders built into the system. You know, the president is the commander in chief, but he is not the only civilian authorities to which the military subordinates itself. As you guys both know, when you go up to testify uh, to the armed services committees you, in Congress, you sit in front of plaques that cite the constitution pointing out that it is the Congress that raises armies and maintains navies. And every senior officer, two star and above, has to put their little hand over their little heart when they go up for their confirmation hearings and promise the Congress that if they ever disagree with the president's policies, that they will inform the Congress of that. Now, most military leaders are pretty adroit about how to keep their foot out of that particular wolf trap of choosing between which of their civilian leaders they are uh, going to have as their primary authority. But there's no doubt that the American military is subordinate to civilian control. Elliot, to answer your question about concerns, maybe just quickly, the only real restraint um, on the American military's uh, subordination to civilian control is actually the professionalism of our military themselves. One of the things Jim and I found in the surveys of public attitudes that we did, that YouGov did for us for warriors and citizens, is that the American public very much wants to drag its military into politics in the way it drags the Supreme Court into politics. Namely that you begin to see American public attitudes revere the military when it supports their politically preferred positions and to think they are compromised or woke or you know, undeserving uh, if they do not. As we saw with a Senate candidate in the state of Ohio for the Republican nomination there, go after retired General Barry McCaffrey just in the last couple of weeks. So we're seeing increased politicization, increased pressure for politicization from a politicized American public and the military saying, please leave us out of this. Corey, can I, let me sort of push you a little bit on this. I take everything you say, you know, from my two tours in the Pentagon, you know, I totally agree with you about the way our, our uniformed leaders operate actually in their jobs for the most part. There are two things I just wanted to pull the string on. One is, to your point about the public wanting to politicize our military, we have had this pattern. I think it really goes back to 1992 and the Clinton campaign. At each political convention of the two parties trotting out flag officers, general and naval officers, to endorse the presidential candidate. Now, some of this, I think, it began, I think, a little bit with Clinton needing some kind of military validation uh, because of the crisis his campaign went through over his draft status and it, it, what it was, et cetera. 
But it's now become, you know, sort of a quadrennial thing. At, at each convention, both sides troop out their general officers. And I think my own observation is this has led to, in successive administrations, deep suspicions among civilian leaders that the military is comprised of either Bush generals or Clinton generals or Bush generals or Obama generals uh, or Trump generals, and that this kind of pendulum swing back and forth has had a terrible impact, actually, on civil-military relations. And then the second string I wanted to pull is that's been exacerbated by the fact that we have created in the Goldwater-Nichols legislation uh, some almost 30 years ago now, very large, almost 40 years, very large permanent, quasi-permanent military staffs, combatant commands and elsewhere, while the rotation of civilian political appointees who are the president's tool, as it were, in exercising civilian control in the Pentagon itself, are, you know, are chronically 25 to 30% vacant. And so a kind of imbalance has arisen in the balance between civilian and military advice coming out of the Pentagon to the president. And now that's been exacerbated by two appointments in a row at the outset of the presidential administrations of recently retired four-star officers to become secretary of defense. So it's not that there's a, as you say, it's not the issue that there's an absence of control, but there does seem to be some the balance of military and civilian advice when it comes to issues of war and peace seems to have been a little bit out of balance. Is that a wrong way to look at it or a wrong concern to have? No, I don't think it's a wrong concern to have at all. Um, I don't I don't share it to the extent that your excellent work on the National Defense Strategy Commission um, emphasized it in the commission's report, because I think actually two things about the civil military imbalance within the Pentagon. First, it is within the secretary's power to execute a rebalance. You know, he could stop seeing his military advisors until after he'd heard from his civilian advisors, but secretaries have just chosen not to do those things. Um, so, so it's in their power to do the rebalance and I wish they would, because the second thing is, uh, I think the proper fix to the imbalance where it exists is not to restrict the functioning of the military or its influence in policy, but to strengthen the civilian because, uh, weakening the military down to the present weak state of the civilian advice makes us all worse off. Um, but but I agree with you that the appointment of two recently retired generals has basically uh, disestablished the norm that we are better served by secretaries who have a breadth of civilian experience. And I very reluctantly endorsed Jim's uh, nomination because I thought President Trump was such a danger that it merited breaching the norm in order to have sensible counselors around him. And I opposed Secretary Austin's nomination because we have the good fortune that President Biden is not the threat to the Constitution that President Trump was. And therefore, I didn't think um, it merited destroying the norm. But I agree with you. I think the best secretaries of defense we have had are men who have been elected officials, 
men who have been lawyers, men who have business leaders, because we don't lack for general officer views in the Pentagon or general officer expertise in the Pentagon. But what makes for a successful secretary, think of the great Elihu Root. What made him so successful was he understood how to marry the defense concerns into high policy conversations um, and how to persuade the legislature to support what was needed for the nation's defense. Um, and, and I do think civilian expertise matters a lot more but I will say that politicians are only gonna stop hiding behind uniforms when it stops being politically valuable to them to do so. Completely agree with you. Um, and I had exactly the same view of um, changing law for Mattis and being dead set against Austin. I, I have to say, I don't think Austin in particular has been a phenomenal defense secretary. And although I have great regard for Jim Mattis as a, as a military leader and as a human being, and, and I do think he was something of a break on some of Trump's worst instincts. You know, he, he's not going to go down as one of the great uh, secretaries of defense. You, you do want to have somebody who has civilian perspectives, a civilian outlook to be in, in charge of all those things. I guess I, I wanted to come back to something a little bit earlier that we had discussed, and that was the the truly outrageous attack on Barry McCaffrey by uh, J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy. Um, now, Barry McCaffrey was uh, wounded multiple times in Vietnam. He commanded 24th Mechanized Division in the first Gulf War, and uh, was a very, very capable commander. Uh, had other very senior positions. And, you know, if you look at J.D., I mean, I think J.D. Vance is desperate, so he's lashing out. But if you look at, you know, what what is the tack that he takes, it, it opens up a subject that we should discuss, which is saying, look, as long as people like you have been in charge, we've been losing wars, and we don't want that anymore. And I, I'd like you to talk, if you would, about what do you think the impact of, you know, the terrible exit from Afghanistan, but also the fact that in general, we don't tend to think of Iraq and Afghanistan as being particular successes has on civil military relations. Has it changed? Has it changed how civilians view military yeah. leadership? And, and has it, does it have an effect on how the military views civilian leadership? Oh, I love those questions. Um, so, and we actually have some data on them. So the findings were really distinctive in the surveys that we did of public attitudes for warriors and citizens. And it was such a nice reminder of the good judgment of the American people because they don't hold the military responsible for losing wars. They hold the president responsible for losing wars. That is, at a fundamental level, the American public understands that strategy is set by the president. It's every American president in war has to determine how much of the nation's effort economically, politically, socially to commit to the war. No American president has ever committed 100%. The Continental Congress didn't during the Revolutionary War. Um, Abraham Lincoln didn't during the Civil War, right? You didn't call up every young man in the country or every person in the country to fight the war. And, and the public gets that. And I think 
they didn't get that during the Vietnam War. And it is one of the things we can be grateful in our current age for having had the political and cultural experience of Vietnam to help the public appreciate that it's actually the political leadership who's responsible for winning and losing wars because they set strategy and resourcing for the wars. And I have been tracking pretty closely public attitudes about the military in the last several years. And they have in the last three years, um, both in Gallup and in Reagan uh, Defense Forum polling, you have seen a greater than 15% drop in public admiration for the American military. You didn't see those kind of drops during the Afghan war and the Iraq war, Elliot. So it wasn't losing those two wars that changed public attitudes. Um, what it was, was partly the very um, visible role that high ranking veterans played in the Obama and Trump administrations. Parenthetically, remember that President Obama appointed as many high ranking veterans to visible cabinet and other posts as President Trump did. Um, so it's partly a reaction in particular though to the Trump appointments. It's partly a reaction to the very visible political role John Allen and Mike Flynn played at the political conventions in 2016. And it's partly a reaction to the growing politicization of issues like uh, the role of women in the military and General Milley volunteering himself into the conversation about critical race theory in his congressional testimony. The, the public says they want the military to play an active outsized role in our domestic politics, but they penalize and respect the military less when they do. And the last thing I'll say, Elliot, is that we have not seen a significant drop in public support for the military because of the debacle in Afghanistan. And that takes us back to the start. The public is punishing the Biden White House for it because they are holding the president responsible for those decisions, not the military. You know, that's a, a wonderful, I think, segue, Corey, into another issue we want to discuss with you, which is the role of President Biden as a wartime president now that we have a, a major war of aggression going on in Central Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, and you wrote about this before the war really started. You wrote about the Biden administration's Biden problem very powerfully in the New York Times, bearing in mind that we only have one president at a time and all three of us uh, endorse Joe Biden because, as you said earlier, he didn't and want a threat. him to succeed at this. Right, and we because he did not, as compared to the former guy, pose a threat to the you know ongoing threat to the Constitution of the United States. Yeah, tell us a little bit about how you think he, he's performed. We've, we've talked a little bit about uh, obviously the Afghanistan debacle, but certainly mm -hmm. be delighted to hear your view of how he played a role in that, but also. How do you think he has handled this whole run-up with Putin to the outbreak of war in Ukraine? I think the president's done a lot of things really well and two things badly. The things he's done really well 
are identifying early on, being open to the intelligence community's assessment early on of what the Russians were doing, sending the director of central intelligence to Moscow to send the message that we knew what was happening, I think was an important early smart move, sending the director of national intelligence to NATO and declassifying reams of intelligence data to share with allies and to give governments of allies time to come to a common position, right? Because democracies, the political science data is quite clear on this, are slow to cohere, but quite enduring once they do. And I think it was really smart of the president to understand that we wanna move forward in unison with a wide tranche of allies, given the threats that Russia poses. He's done a fabulous job of holding NATO unity. Um, as the poor slob who had to do the day-to-day -day work of coalition management for country for coalitions in Iraq and Afghanistan, I have a rich appreciation of how many, how much effort it takes to hold allies together. And the administration's done it brilliantly. I thought it was a real grace note sending the Secretary of State to Berlin as the new government there was cohering to not only have private conversations with the government, but also to give a public speech about why Germans should care about Russia's threat to Ukraine. I think the sanctions are pretty good uh, and increasingly good. And the president, while slow at the start, has done a good job of explaining to the American people and the world what Russia is trying to do and why we should penalize them for doing it. A couple of things I wish he hadn't done. The first is I wish he hadn't been so, hadn't been rushing so often to make sure the Russians knew they would never encounter American troops in Ukraine. Uh, because even though I don't think after the debacle of Afghanistan, we can credibly threaten that that the Biden administration was gonna take the United States to war in Ukraine, against Russia and Ukraine, I do think the Russians having to assess that risk for themselves strengthens deterrence. Now, I don't think anything we could have done short of defending Ukraine probably would have deterred Putin from the terrible war he's imposed on them. But I still think as a, as a matter of uh, the effective use of military force, the president shouldn't have been so clear about that. And for an administration that is trying to popularize the notion of integrated defense, that is of all parts of the government working together to deter and advance our interests, it's actually a pretty significant failure that they are bad at integrating the use of military force into strategy. And the last thing I wish, two last quick things I wish the president hadn't done. I wish he hadn't closed our embassy in Kiev. I wish instead he had explained American diplomats very often work in danger and amidst war to protect and advance our interests. And I wish the American embassy were a place where President Zelensky could go in extremis if the Russians attempt to assassinate him. And I wish 
uh, we hadn't taken the American observers out of the OSCE mission in the eastern part of Ukraine, because I think they were bearing witness in important ways. But on balance, I think the president's done very well. To that last point, that's I think that's a very important point. My, my guess is, from what I know of the State Department, and of course, uh, Eric, you know it better than I do, I bet you the state the diplomats probably wanted to stay too, to to be there on the ground, even if even if a little bit, uh, even more than a little bit hazardous. I mean, there, there's a, a particular question about Ukraine. I think later on we want to would like to discuss with you how this changes America's approach to the world. Uh, but I, I am curious, what would be your theory of victory for us in this confrontation with Russia? Is it that we arm the Ukrainians to the teeth, and this you know, they defeat the Russians, or which seems a little bit implausible, or if they cause so much damage and loss that Putin faces overwhelming domestic pressure, or, or indeed gets thrown out of power. What, what would you say our theory of victory should be? That's a really important question, Elliot. And first, I want to say how much I enjoyed your recent piece in the Atlantic about us overestimating Russian strength and Russian capability. The Russians had to resort to extraordinary brutality to subjugate Chechnya. In the couple of skirmishes they had with American forces in Syria, we braced them up pretty quickly. And they haven't, they've only barely been able to hold on to Donetsk and Luhansk and not even the entirety of the provinces. And what their threats to Ukraine have done you know, Vladimir Putin's the father of Ukrainian nationalism. He even managed to turn Russian speakers in Ukraine into national patriots. My theory of victory is that the Ukrainian military remains strong enough to continue fighting, that you get an insurgency, which it looks like the Ukrainians, God love them, have the stomach to fight that you get, that it becomes to look like the Spanish Civil War, where you get irregular forces flowing in as freedom fighters to support the Ukrainians. We arm and train and economically supply them and wear the Russians down to the point where they have to withdraw ignominiously from Ukraine and preferably Elliot, I'd like your outcome of Putin getting the death of Stalin treatment. I have to say, I have been really impressed by the courage that Russians in 53 cities would turn out to protest their government when that is at minimum a jail sentence. I think we sometimes underestimate how much that society has changed, particularly, you know, the middle class part of it, which I think has aspirations and, and values, which are not along the lines of an old KGB operative. You know, Corey, as I listened to you, though, I wanted to ask, I mean, I, I love your theory of victory. Nothing would make me happier than to see, you know, Vladimir Putin have to pull out of Ukraine with his proverbial tail between his legs. And I think it would be the beginning of the end of his regime, frankly, just as the withdrawal from Afghanistan was in many ways a precursor to the collapse within a couple of years of Soviet power totally. But, you know, you studied when you did your PhD, you know, all, all three of us have PhDs <laughs> with George Quester and, and Thomas Schelling. Um, and you know about, uh, you know, competition and risk taking and the risk that leaves 
something to to chance. I mean, I've been struck, and Elliot and I have you know talked in other conversations about this with Putin's quite open invocation of nuclear threats, something we haven't really heard much you know uh, of since 1991, certainly, and actually probably well before that. I mean, it, after all, it was Gorbachev and Reagan who jointly said that a nuclear war can't be won and should never be fought. And that was you know almost 40 years ago, a little less, but closing in on it. I, you know, I've been struck not just with that in this context, but I've been struck with it by the fact that he said uh, back about six or seven years ago, after he seized Crimea, that he actually thought about using nuclear weapons during the Crimea operation. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, he said it on a documentary on Russian TV. Wow. So he is very open to making these threats. And he's not the only Russian official who's done this. Rogozin has done it. The ambassador to Denmark has done it. What do you make of it? I mean, you know, how seriously do you think we should take it? Is it bluff? I mean, certainly we, there's a long history of Soviet bluffing uh, going back to Khrushchev. But, how, you know, how seriously should we take this? And what do you think the response should be? I think we should take it very seriously. Putin is doing in Ukraine what he said he was going to do in Ukraine. And I don't think we should kid ourselves that he might actually be willing to risk a nuclear war with the United States in order to further his maniacal, megalomaniacal vision of greater Russia. But I think the right response for us is the one that the French foreign minister has already given, which is we too are nuclear possessor states. You know, the criticism I made of the Biden administration about not integrating military force into its strategy is that we are telling the Russians over and over again that we are more fearful of the risks they are posing than they are. And um, I think, you know, as a student of Tom and George, I think that's actually a mistake. I think we should remind them that we have the ability to win a conventional war with them. We have the ability to fight a nuclear war with them. And we would fight it by targeting the leadership, not the Russian people. I think this, the right threat to use against the Russians is the same threat to use against the North Koreans, which is... Um, if you want to fight us, you will not survive it. Your country will, you will not. I think, Corey, you're, uh, you're right. I, and, and I think in particular, the point about not signaling fearfulness. Uh, you know, we're, we're entering a different age where to signal that kind of thing is particularly perilous. Um, we're, we're running short on time, unfortunately. So I was wondering if I could take us in a slightly different direction before handing the con back to Eric. Uh, as I said at the outset, I mean, Eric and I are Eora and uh, Puddle Glum. You know, we have a kind of a dark view of the world. We're all th three of us were never Trumpers. I think Eric and I, well, I'll speak for myself. Eric can speak for himself. You know, I feel very much like a homeless person politically. All three of us were very active in opposing Trump. And one of the things I'm quite proud of uh, is that the then Republican foreign policy national security community in 2016 really took a lead in opposing Trump as a man who was very dangerous in a number of ways. And alas, I think we were proven to be right. But what distinguishes you is you're cheerful and optimistic. And uh, <laughs> I, I was wondering if you could, if only to cheer us up on this particular front, 
explain why you are and why you think that the Republican Party can not only recover, but recover with a you know basically a sensible set of foreign policies. And I'll just add one one thing to that. You know, we talked earlier about criticism of the American military. What's striking is that's coming from the right now. You know, we're used yeah. to the idea of uh, that coming from the left, but it's coming from the Tucker Carlson's as well as the J.D. Vance's. And if you look at some of the speechifying that goes on at places like CPAC, or, or you look at their willingness to associate with, you know, people who really are kind of right-wing hoodlums, uh, sort of like Viktor Orban in Hungary, you know, you, you really wonder, have, have the Republicans simply lost their moorings, or is it just a bad patch and it'll get better? So tell me it's going to get better. Not only is it going to get better, it's already getting better, Elliot. Um, so all three of us are historians. So I know you guys know this as well as I do, but I'll rehearse it anyway. Um, the two things, in, two important historical perspectives to have. First, we are not newly a country full of crazy people electing reckless politicians. We have very often proven ourselves a country full of reckless people electing dangerous politicians. Um, and the structure of our, the genius of our founders in how they structured our government, tying the House of Representatives so tightly to public attitudes, creating a Senate which has wider uh, constituencies for calmer aggregation of preferences, um, all of those good things make the system self-correcting, and I believe we are seeing the self-correction right now. I'll get to that in a minute. But the second historical perspective I wanted to offer is that uh, we are in the midst of an enormous technological and economic upheaval in our time that globalization of logistics and expansion of communications technologies are really revolutionary. I mean, it's equivalent to uh, the telegraph and railroads in the late uh, 19th century or the expansion by canals, uh, maybe even the passing of the founding fathers generation and the emergence of these uneducated frontiersmen like Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln who transform American politics. So we're in a time of enormous change and that we are adapting to that change in a way that makes it very hard to see what the, what the upheavals will produce. But in both of those previous times, maybe the 1960s are another example. I don't think the upheaval of our moment should cause us to doubt that we are actually finding our way through this. And if you think about uh, the genius of the political system, so any idiot can get elected in this country and very often does, but you still have to persuade people of your path. And what's been actually really heartening for me is the increasing marginalization of our disgraced former president. We're about to get a big electoral test of the disgraced former president's continuing appeal. He has endorsed a number of candidates. He has railed against the, the Republican leader in the Senate and several senators by name, all of whom are likely 
to continue to be elected irrespective of his opposition. And he's endorsed some candidates like for example, Eric Greitens and for uh, Senate in Missouri that are likely to imperil Republican control of the Senate if it were in reach. I think you begin to see the formation of groups like Heath Mayo's principled conservative groups, uh, excuse me, principles first conservatism group and other civil society activism. Americans have realized what a threat uh, the Trump movement is and you're seeing the end game of it being played out. So I am actually quite optimistic that things are going in positive directions and that the reason they're going in positive directions are as Peggy Noonan famously wrote, the American public doesn't like the smell of sulfur. Well, uh, that makes me feel uh, somewhat better, but the, um, the problem is going to be when it's just me and Eric on the show, I'll go back to being a pessimist again. So. <laughs> yes, thank you, Corey, for bringing that little flicker of light to this otherwise extremely dark, dark place that is Shield of the Republic. You're welcome for my service. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if we could finish this great conversation with you, Corey, with you telling us a little bit about how you think the events that we've been talking about uh, a lot today, which is the this awful war that has been unclenched by Vladimir Putin in, in Ukraine, is likely to affect the longer term trajectory of the U.S. approach to national uh, security. We've seen a rise of isolationist sentiment, I think it's fair to say. Uh, on both the right and left. You know, I don't think it's uh, an accident that Tulsi Gabbard is appearing on Tucker Carlson with much the same views. We've seen a very well-funded effort to support this idea of so-called restraint, which in, you know, is really a euphemism for isolationism. Is this event going to be a, a direction-changing one in the public? I mean, I I've been buoyed in one sense by public opinion polling that shows there is a bipartisan support for standing up to Russia and trying to support Ukraine. By the same token, if you look at the crosstabs, Republicans are very evenly divided uh, on the subject. Uh, so even though there is bipartisanship in the Republican Party, which used to be the party of Ronald Reagan, which used to be the party of peace through strength, you have a lot of folks in the conference in both the House and the Senate who see the 050 account as just another government spending account that ought to be cut like everything else. So how do you think this is going to play out in terms of the trajectory? I think it's going to be extraordinarily beneficial to our country's security. Um, because for at least 15 years, Americans have tolerated a growing gap between our strategy and our resourcing of it. We have a strategy that requires us to actually be able to deter and defend our interests simultaneously in two completely disconnected parts of the world, right? That is our strategy. And yet, our force planning construct has not embraced that requirement since what, 1996 or seven? Eric and Elliot, you guys know this better than I. And we are underfunding our defense by substantial margins. And that's even before the Biden administration starts stuffing climate change and other priorities into defense to distract from our ability to fight and win wars. Not to mention inflation. 
Not to mention inflation. Yes, exactly. Um, my personal view is that defense spending should be at least 5% of GDP, so at least a trillion dollars now, given the threats we face in the world. And I actually think, I actually think I'm winning the argument. <laughs> Here, here's the supporting data. The first, 53% of Americans are willing to go to war against China to defend Taiwan. And that tells you, that's a huge sea change. That tells you the isolationists are losing the argument. That tells you the American public has very good judgment about growing threats that we are facing uh, in the international order. Second, the Biden administration tried to claim they submitted essentially the Trump defense budget, but better because it was focused on research and development. Um, and yet the Congress on a bipartisan basis added $27 billion to the top line. And I wouldn't be surprised to see a supplemental defense spending request be coming in. But I should say the best thing the Congress could do is actually pass the budget on time. It costs the Defense Department, Elaine McCusker from my foreign and defense team at AEI assesses that it costs the Pentagon almost $100 million a day in lost um, buying power that the Congress doesn't pass the budget. And so we need to rebuild Congress's sense of its authority. Um, and I believe, again, uh, some supporting data, 40 some members of Congress on a bipartisan basis sent a letter to the president saying uh, that only the Congress should be able to authorize American troops going to Ukraine. Now, um, Congress asserting its authorities is good for us. And so I'm glad to see them do that, even though I think that's uh, not a subject on which they need to assert their authority at the moment. So, so I actually do think that Americans have a really high tolerance for seeing the world as it is and making sensible choices about preserving our security and our prosperity. And I think this is a moment where that's going to be strengthened and it's going to be a shield of the Republic that Americans choose to do that. Well, I certainly endorse uh, a trillion dollar top line, uh, Corey. I'm, I'm glad you said it and not me, because otherwise I'd be accused of being a warmonger. But I appreciate uh, very much what you were saying. And I agree with it totally, of course. Me too. And uh, thanks for cheering us up. If, if, if we have just one more minute, I was wondering, do you think there's not a window of vulnerability, but let's say there is a substantial increase in defense spending. And we're moving into a world where we think about Russia and China, as opposed to just focusing on China, which is where we've been. Does this mean that we have a somewhat more dangerous couple of years ahead of us before those things kick in? Yes, but we have an even greater danger in the next couple of years if those things don't kick in. Yeah, true. Right? We have tolerated a reckless underfunding of our strategy and our adversaries are testing the proposition. And so we need to square our shoulders think about effective ways to navigate that window of vulnerability, better political warfare, for example. I seem to recall a counselor to the Secretary of State <laughs> arguing that in the Bush administration, Elliot Cohen. 
Uh, yes, I guess I recall that too. <laughs> but we shouldn't despair on two counts, two really important counts. One is that our values actually are universal. Defending human dignity and freedom are inspiring in a way other things are not. And Americans get that and others get it too. The second thing we shouldn't despair is that this country is strong and vibrant and will find good ways to solve these problems because civil society is actually the superpower. Well, Cora, you've done a lot to uh, raise our spirits today, um, since normally this is a pretty glum place <laughs> where, where our outlook is. Things, you know, things are bad, but they can always get worse. Um, so um, I'm Keep really grateful. Back to cheer us up. That's yeah, we're, we're going to need to have you back regularly to cheer us up because uh, particularly, you know, Fabulous. With I'd the, love idea to. A, <laughs> the idea of a trillion dollar top line, which which after four point five trillion in spending by, you know, appropriated by the Congress over the last two years actually really seems pretty modest to me now. So, <laughs> Corey Shockey, thank you very much for joining us on Shield of the Republic. We do hope to have you back and uh, hope you have a, a great weekend. It was a great pleasure, my friends. Thank you for the example both of you provide for me and so many others. You too. Thanks, Corey.